You are listening to Odyssey, the podcast, history's other most awesome epic. This is episode number one in the series. Today's episode is titled Penelope. And so welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Odyssey, the podcast. My name is Jeff Wright. I live in Ottawa, Canada, and I'm going to be your storytelling bard and your traveling companion on this serialized journey through Homer's Odyssey. Now, folks, Homer's Odyssey is considered by scholars and by literary critics to be one of the foundational works of world literature. And the scholars and the critics will go on at length about how Homer's Odyssey informed all sorts of various literary forms and storytelling devices that we see in all of our other stories, our films, and our blockbuster movies up into the 21st century. Now, all of that, of course, is true. Homer's Odyssey is a very important work of literature. But, as I sit here today as your storyteller, what truly matters to me is that the Odyssey is also one incredibly entertaining story. And it is an absolute blast to tell this story to an audience, either live on stage, as I do in my professional job, or here as a podcaster, as I'm doing for our mutual pleasure. And so folks, if you choose to tune in to Odyssey the Podcast, well, this podcast serial is going to offer you two things. First of all, of course, you will come away with some knowledge and a greater appreciation of one of literature's great works of art. But more importantly, or at least as importantly, as far as I'm concerned, you will come away having heard one really kick-ass entertainment of a story. Now, when all is said and done, I think the second reason is more important than the first. Because back 2,500 years ago, when Homer penned his Odyssey, He wasn't thinking about the scholars or the literary critics. He was thinking about the audience who would be listening to bards like me telling his tale. So a little bit about how I'm going to tell you that particular tale. Ladies and gentlemen, during the Odyssey podcast to follow, I am going to be using my own storytelling voice. I'm not going to pretend to be Homeric or put on one of those fancy scholarly voices as I tell the story. I'm Jeff. You're going to hear Jeff talking and telling a story to you. Now, on occasion, because Homer's Odyssey offers such brilliant poetry, I will dive from Jeff's voice directly into Homer's voice. And I will share bits of the Odyssey with you directly from various translations that I have sitting in front of me right now. And there's one other thing I'll be doing. Ladies and gentlemen, Homer's audience, back when he wrote this story 2,500 years ago, well, Homer's audience didn't require Homer to ever pause his story, turn to his audience and say, "Uh, you'll be needing some cultural context now to understand this next little bit. Because, of course, it was their culture. They got all of the context. 
But folks, 2,500 years have passed. And there are all sorts of places in the Odyssey where contemporary readers and listeners and storytellers like me need to pause a little bit and get a little bit of help with orienting ourselves to the worldview that Homer and Homer's original audience would have had. So you will find, as I tell Homer's story to you, that I dance in and out of Homer's text to provide you with context, background, and everything you need to actually help us together make sense of this brilliant piece of storytelling. Now, one more thing about Homer's Odyssey before we dive right into the plot. The Odyssey works really well in one of two different ways. If you choose, and many readers do choose, you can pick up a copy of Homer's Odyssey or listen to Jeff's Odyssey the Podcast as a freestanding story. You do not need to know anything. You can dive right in and I promise you a great deal of fun. On the other hand, Homer's Odyssey and Jeff's Odyssey the Podcast Project well, they serve as sequels of sorts to stories that Homer, and by extension Jeff, has already told. Homer told his story quite brilliantly in The Iliad, and I did my level-stumbling best to tell my story inside of Trojan War, the podcast. And so, folks, if you are a veteran of the 25 hours of my previous podcast... Well, welcome back, and Odyssey the Podcast for you veterans is going to feel like a seamless continuation of a story we are already very deeply invested in. And for those of you who are new, who have never listened to my podcasts before, well, welcome aboard. And if you want to dive right into Homer's Odyssey with me, I can promise you a great deal of fun. On the other hand, if you want to leap over and listen to Trojan War the Podcast first, well, then you will get the backstory, the backstory, and the back, back, backstory on everything I'm about to begin telling you right now. So the choice is yours. Now, just before we proceed any further, here's what we all need to know. So 11 years ago, a Trojan prince, a guy named Paris, traveled across the Aegean Sea from Troy to visit a Greek city-state. The city-state he chose to visit was called Sparta. The ruler of Sparta was a warlord king named Menelaus. Well, Paris had a fine old time, enjoying Menelaus's hospitality, but then Paris decided he would prefer to enjoy Menelaus's wife. Now, her name, folks, was Helen. At the time, she was known all over the Mediterranean world as Helen of Sparta. Now, of course, she is known all over the entire world as Helen of Troy. Well, what happened next is a little bit of a mystery. Whether Helen went voluntarily back to Troy or was abducted by Paris of Troy, we will never really know. But whatever the case, Helen ended up back in Troy. And the Greek world was none too pleased by that particular development. And so the Greek world launched a massive invasion armada against the city of Troy. 100,000 Greek soldiers on 1,000 Greek ships. They sailed across the Aegean Sea, about a 10-day sail, and they lay siege to the largest walled city that the Greeks had ever seen. Now, the siege was supposed to have taken two to three weeks, maybe a month at most. 
But it turned out that those walls were rather spectacular walls. In fact, there was even a prophecy about them that the walls of Troy would never be destroyed by an enemy force. And folks, after 10 years of the Greeks sitting on the stinking hot beaches of Troy, well, the Greeks were beginning to think that that prophecy just might be true. The war, which was supposed to have lasted a month, went on and on and on. But then, finally, in the tenth year of the war, when it appeared that all hope was lost for either side ever actually winning the war, well, a Greek warlord named Odysseus came up with a rather audacious plan for getting inside the walls of Troy. And ladies and gentlemen, we all have heard of his plan because it is the famous Trojan horse. And in one night, after ten years of deadlocked fighting, the city of Troy, thanks to Odysseus's Trojan horse, well, the city of Troy fell. There was butchery, there was bloodshed, there was rape and various and sundry assorted blasphemies on that night. But by morning, well, the city of Troy was a burning ruin. Now, on the night of Odysseus's famous wooden horse, two things significant to our story happened. First, of course, Troy was destroyed, and the Greeks who had managed to survive the ten years of the war were suddenly exceedingly wealthy men. Their fleet of boats heading back home to Greece was awash in Trojan gold, in Trojan treasure, and in Trojan slaves. And the next thing that happened that night? Well, Odysseus, the author of The Wooden Horse, Odysseus cemented his already well-established reputation as being a polytropous man. Now, folks, there is no modern English equivalent to this word that the ancient Greek world was using to describe Odysseus. But by using the word polytropus, P-O-L-Y-T-R-O-P-U-S, what Odysseus' contemporaries were getting at was a core element of Odysseus's personality. Ladies and gentlemen, the author of The Wooden Horse, Odysseus, had also been the author of a whole host of earlier manipulations and cons. So Odysseus was a man already well-known throughout the Mediterranean world for his cunning, for his creativity, for his curiosity, and, of course, for his courage in battle. But Odysseus was also known across the Mediterranean world for his lies, his deceits and deceptions, his con jobs, his penchant for vengeance, and most of all, for his desire to tell long, lying, entirely fabricated bullshit stories. So, in short, Odysseus, on the night of the wooden horse, cemented his reputation for being a highly nuanced, multidimensional, and very complicated man. Now, why this matters to we listeners. Folks, as a storyteller, you can only do so much when your character, your lead character in a story, is one of those stock, one-dimensional white hats or black hats. Because everything they're going to do in the entire plot becomes pretty predictable pretty quickly. 
But the story I'm going to be telling you, Homer's story, Homer's story about Odysseus, well, it will not be predictable at all. Because Odysseus, the complicated, polytropous man, is anything but a stock character. Which is going to make the Odyssey an absolute blast to tell, and I am hoping an absolute delight for you, my listeners, to enjoy. And so now, on to our story. Our story picks up on the morning after the fall of the city of Troy. We are down on the beach, and Odysseus, the king of Ithaca, has gathered his remaining Ithacan subjects, his countrymen who have served as soldiers for the last ten years, down on the beach. Sitting beside them on the beach, pulled up onto the sand shore, are Odysseus's twelve heavily treasure-laden ships. And they're about to depart. They are about to head off for home. Now, folks, as our story opens, Odysseus, the king of Ithaca, has only one simple and, you would think, easily managed goal. His only task is to ferry his fleet of 600 countrymen back across the Aegean Sea to the Greek peninsula, up the west side of that peninsula, and then to the island kingdom of Ithaca. The entire journey should take 10 days or so, depending on wind, waves, and weather. Now, what's waiting for Odysseus and company back in Ithaca? Well, for those soldiers on board the ships, their families, their wives, their children, their parents, their sisters, people that they had said goodbye to 10 years ago and thought they would be able to see again in a matter of a few weeks. And what also is waiting for them, of course? Their pre-war lives, their businesses, their farms, their fisheries, their fields, everything they did before, 10 years ago, they suddenly were conscripted and became Ithacan soldiers. And as for Odysseus personally, what or who is waiting for him at the end of his homeward journey? Well, let's leave that, folks till a little bit later inside of this episode. So back to the beach. Odysseus gave the command. The men pushed the 12 wooden ships out onto the beach, and they began to sail away from the burning ruins of the city of Troy in a quest for their homecomings. A simple 10 days sail across Poseidon's wine-dark sea. Ladies and gentlemen, the journey home should have been ridiculously easy. Now, as it turned out, folks, a few hours after the fleet had set sail from Troy, some of the more seasoned navigators inside of the fleet took notice of a change in the winds. Something was blowing in from the west, and it did not look pretty at all. And so the smarter sailors put their heads together with Odysseus and decided on an alternate route home. So instead of sailing directly across the Aegean Sea and possibly getting into a nasty storm, the fleet decided to hug the coastline, head north until they reached the top end of the Troad, 
and then turned south and hugged the eastern coastline of Greece until they made their way back that way. All the time, they would be very near landfall, and if the winds and the waves got too high, they would easily be able to pull the 12 ships of their fleet ashore and seek some sort of shelter. So essentially, in mathematical terms, instead of cutting across the hypotenuse, they were taking both sides of the triangle. Now, the route seemed promising, the route seemed safe, the route was going to add only a couple of additional days to their homeward journey, but the route had one downside. Ladies and gentlemen, the route home that Odysseus chose brought the fleet directly into the path of the seaside city of Ismarus. And for Odysseus, a soldier and, truth be told, a bit of a pirate at heart, well, Odysseus simply could not resist the low-hanging fruit of that city. Folks, Ismarus was famous for its wealth, it was famous for its vineyards and its top-notch vintage wines, and more importantly for Odysseus on this particular day, Ismarus had no walls to speak of, and the people of Ismarus were blissfully unaware that 600 Greek battle-hardened veterans from Troy were about to sail by their undefended city. Now, the truth is, the Greeks needed no more treasure. In fact, it was going to be difficult to get any more treasure onto their already sinking deep in the Aegean Sea boats. But for Odysseus and for the members of his crew, well, the fire of war was still coursing through their veins, and they simply could not resist sacking yet one more city, particularly if the city was entirely defenseless. And so, mid-morning, on only the first day out from Troy, Odysseus, 600 other men, and 12 ships rowed hard ashore onto the Ismarus beach and put the undefended city to the sword. In Odysseus's own words, I plundered the city, I killed all of the men, and we took the women with us as slaves, along with a vast haul of treasure. But then, ladies and gentlemen, the troubles began. Here's what happened. Odysseus's men approached Odysseus and declared that now that they had burned the city of Ismarus to the ground, they wanted to take a holiday of sorts. They wanted to stay on the beach overnight and enjoy what the men referred to as the spoils of war. And by spoils of war, of course, Odysseus's crew were referring to the barbecue, the wine, and of course, all of those captive women available now for easy rape. Well, Odysseus objected, not on any particular principle, I need assure you, but on the principle that the raid had been a success and there was no point at all sticking around any longer than necessary and courting potential disaster. Odysseus suggested packing up the wine, packing up the captured women, and finding some other safe place to enjoy both of them. But the men were adamant. They absolutely refused to reboard the ships and sail away. Odysseus reports that he did his best. I told my men that we had to sail at once, 
but they did not listen to me. Great fools that they were. And so, instead of a quick smash, grab, and escape raid, well, the attack on Ismarus devolved into an all-night keg party of the very first and very highest order. And soon, all 600 of the men, and possibly Odysseus himself, well, they were all blind drunk, passed out, sound asleep, or at best, badly, badly hung over. And that, of course, is when disaster struck. The survivors of the raid on Ismarus, well, those survivors had run as fast as they could, or taken quick chariots, and reached out to all of the nearby villages, towns, and cities on that coast of the Troad, warning all of those villages, towns, and cities that the Greeks were coming with a sizable force. Well, the leaders of the various towns, villages, and cities put their heads together and decided that their best strategy now was not to wait and get picked off one at a time, but rather to band their forces together and try to eliminate the annoyance of the homeward-bound Greeks once and for all, right now and this very evening. And so, as Odysseus and his crew enjoyed their all-night keg party on the beach, entirely oblivious to anything like enemy forces or even posting a sober watch, well, a combined army, much larger than Odysseus's 600 men, swept across the beach in fast chariots and attacked the drunken, hungover crew. Odysseus reports, At dawn, they attacked, as uncountable as the leaves and flowers in the spring, and disaster overtook us. We fought a ferocious battle beside our ships, and so long as the sun climbed high in the sky, we managed to hold our ground. But when the sun turned round and began to dip in the west, well, the enemy broke through our lines and put us to flight. And it is really no wonder that the Greek army lost that day. Because it does not matter how battle-hardened a veteran you are of the Trojan War, you're not an awful lot of use in a fight if you're blind, drunk, or badly hung over. And so, the Greeks, ignominiously, their tails between their legs, sprinted for their ships and pulled away from the burning ruins of Ismarus and got outside of the range of the arrows and the spears following them. And once they were safe out into the main part of the Aegean, Odysseus stopped to count their losses. And ladies and gentlemen, the losses were rather grim. The reports came in, and six men from each of the twelve ships had died, for a total of 72 Ithacan men, fathers, sons, husbands, and brothers, who had died entirely pointless, drunken deaths, less than one week from their homecoming. And ladies and gentlemen, if you will permit me a little storytellers aside, of course it is still very early days in our boy Odysseus's journey home. 
But the disaster at Ismaris does raise one troubling question. And the question is this. Will all of the attributes and personality traits that made Odysseus such a brilliant leader in war, well, will those attributes and personality traits serve him well now, when he's not engaged in gloriously sacking cities, but rather is engaged in the much more pedestrian and mundane task of responsibly ferrying 600 battle-hardened survivors safely back home. Now, it is way, way, way too early in our epoch to draw any conclusions about Odysseus as a peacetime leader. But I think that we can agree that the Ismarus incident was hardly an auspicious beginning to our hero's homecoming journey. And then things got even worse. Zeus sent a storm. The storm raged for ten days and ten nights. And when the storm finally ended, the fleet had been blown entirely off course and into the unknown. In fact, some of the veteran sailors on those twelve ships reported to Odysseus that they were no longer even sure if they were in the Mediterranean at all. Well, eventually the storm ended, and then the twelve ships of the fleet, still somehow miraculously all together, well, those twelve ships found themselves floating offshore of a strange and unknown island. So they landed, of course. They had been at sea in a storm for ten days, and they did their best to establish some sort of a camp on the beach. Evening was coming on, so they quickly assembled cook fires got some food going, and then, after they had eaten, they pulled out a few casks of that very hard-won Ismerian wine. Now, late in the evening, Odysseus realized that it might be for the best to send out some sort of a reconnaissance team, just to explore the perimeter and make sure that there was nobody out there in the dark who might pose a threat to the 600 men. Odysseus reports as follows. We needed to find out what kind of people lived on the island. So I chose two men and one slave in order to make three, and I sent the team out in order to scout. Now, folks, that was very well and good, except that the scouting party sent out by Odysseus failed to return before dark. And so now, quite anxious and alarmed, Odysseus posted a heavy guard around the perimeter of the camp, and he and those guardmen spent a sleepless night worrying what might have happened to the reconnoiter party out there in the dark. Well, an uneventful night followed, and first thing in the morning, Odysseus put together a new reconnaissance team with him in the lead, and that team headed inland in search of the missing party from the night before. And in no time at all, folks, Odysseus found the three men who were missing, and met, for the first time, the local inhabitants who lived on the island. Now, the local inhabitants turned out to be remarkably friendly, quite social, and absolutely benign. And they had clearly not done any damage to the search party of the night before. In fact, Odysseus found his three missing men 
accompanied by the locals and his three missing men, were all now apparently in good health, and they seemed to be, from the smiles on their face, absolutely quite content. So Odysseus, now curious because, well, that's the price of being Polytropus, I suppose, well, Odysseus pressed the locals for details on who they were and what sort of lives they lived. And he learned the following from the locals. The people who lived in the island referred to themselves as the Lotus Eaters. And upon further inquiry, Odysseus was informed that Lotus was a plant with a particular honey-sweet fruit. Apparently, the plant was indigenous to this particular island, and it was all that the lotus eaters, who lived in the island, ever consumed. Now, apparently, the lotus eaters, the night before, when they had encountered Odysseus's three-man search party, had offered the appropriate hospitality to their guests and fed the three of them a massive and full meal of the honey-sweet fruit from the lotus plant. And that is where the troubles had begun. Here's what happened. Odysseus profusely thanked the lotus eaters for their night before's hospitality to his men. And then Odysseus turned and ordered the three men from the first search party to accompany him and the men from the second search party back to their twelve ships. It was time to be sailing on to home. But the three men who had consumed the lotus, now absolutely refused to obey their captain's order. In Odysseus's own words, Once my men had eaten that sweet, delicious fruit, they lost their will to come back to the ships. They only wanted to stay, feeding on lotus with the lotus eaters, and never to go home again. And it turned out that no amount of coaxing, of cajoling, of ordering, or even of forcing made any difference to those three men. They simply refused to leave. Apparently, the lotus fruit was not only highly addictive, its effects were pretty well immediate and all-consuming. And so poor Odysseus, their captain, had really no other choice. Here's what he had to do. And so I dragged them, in tears, forced them to board the ships, pushed them below deck, and finally, I tied them up. And it appears that the tying up was an absolute necessity. The poor addicted men were screaming, begging, crying, and all the while struggling to make it back to the land of the lotus eaters. They had no other wish in the world but to stay on that island forever, eternally eating lotus. In Odysseus's final words about the island, they had given up entirely on their desire to ever again see their own dear country. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, the Odyssey is a quest story. And on Odysseus's journey home, we are going to encounter all sorts of monsters and all sorts of temptations. And it's really not a surprise that Homer, the master storyteller, chose to tempt his 
battle-scarred veterans of ten years of bloody fighting to a temptation which involved forgetfulness, a loss of all memory of the terrible deeds of the past, and a blanking out of the possibility of any future. Okay, so back to our story. Odysseus reports that the fleet sailed away from the land of the Lotus Eaters, and eventually, later on that afternoon, encountered a rather remarkable and entirely lotus-free island. While the crew landed, they set up their cook fires, and Odysseus did a little bit of a reconnoiter himself. And he came back and he reported to the men of his crew the following. The island was, according to Odysseus, lush with fertile lands for farming and viniculture, rich meadows for grazing sheep and goats, freshwater springs, and a deep, safe, natural harbor. And so, with that very promising account and no obvious threats on this island, Odysseus and the team decided to land and take the day off. A bit of a respite, if you will, after the incident at Ismarus and the land of the Lotus people. Now, serving dinner proved to be absolutely no problem at all in this island. The island appeared to be entirely uninhabited by human beings, and as a consequence, the wild sheep and the goats of the island, well, they pretty well wandered down from the hills and gave themselves up for dinner. And so a wonderful evening transpired. There was barbecued food, there was more of that wine from Ismarus, and lest we paint too idyllic and romantic a picture, there were, of course, those captured slave girls to provide abundant entertainment for all. But by the next morning at dawn, while the entire crew were ready to continue making their way home. The evening off had been rather nice, but now it was time to get back to Ithaca. Except for one problem. Odysseus, who had been sitting up on his own in the night before, now had the curiosity bug. And folks, here's why. As Odysseus had been sitting on the island, he had seen smoke rising from cook fires on the mainland. And also along with those cook fires, Odysseus had heard strange, almost human sounds coming from the mainland. And so the next morning, instead of the fleet packing up and heading onwards west towards Ithaca, Odysseus declared another temporary holiday. That is, for most of the fleet. But then Odysseus went on to declare that he himself was going to commandeer one of the ships and a small skeleton crew, sail from their current location on the island, over to the mainland, and engage in a little bit of investigation of the strange cook fires and the almost human voices and sounds that he had been hearing. Well, the men really had no choice but to obey. So they sat down and they settled in for another day of barbecue, women, and wine. Meanwhile, Odysseus put together a skeleton crew. They hopped onto one of the ships and they sailed across the strait from the island and landed sometime later on the mainland's shore. Now, when they landed, Odysseus singled out just 12 of his men, declaring these 12 to be my hand-picked bravest men, and instructed the less brave men, I suppose, to stand guard and watch at the boat down by the beach. And then, folks, Odysseus, 
accompanied by his hand-picked 12 brave men, headed inland in search of those cooking fires and the strange, almost human voices. Well, they wandered for some time, and eventually they found themselves up against a sheer rock face wall. And carved into that wall, improbably carved into that wall, was an absolutely massive cave. And that, of course, is when the twelve brave men accompanying Odysseus began to grow somewhat alarmed. They knew enough about their Polytropus leader to know that one of Odysseus's attributes was his insatiable curiosity. And as they looked at Odysseus, they knew that it was his intention to light torches, head into the cave, sit down, and wait for the cave's owner to return home. Now, folks, there was a good reason for the twelve brave men's alarm. In Military Training 101, caves rank up there among the most obvious and dangerous of death traps. Once you're in a cave, if something or somebody chooses to block your entrance, well, you have absolutely no way of escaping back out. And so Odysseus's men suggested, in fact, urged caution. And even Odysseus himself, standing at the entrance of that cave, confesses that he had some doubts of his own. Here's what he says. I had from the start a premonition that we would run into a creature, a creature of gigantic strength and savagery, a creature with no knowledge of laws or of justice. But, in spite of the men's misgivings and in spite of his own premonitions, Odysseus simply could not tamp down his curiosity. And so he guided his twelve hand-picked, bravest men into that cave. And he instructed his twelve hand-picked, bravest men to sit down and patiently wait for the owner of the cave to return home. And soon, the owner of the cave did return home. And then... Odysseus's twelve brave men started to die. Horrifying, unspeakable deaths. Well, Odysseus, their leader, looked on, absolutely powerless to save them. Now, of course, ladies and gentlemen, the one thing which we all know, even if we've never heard the story before, is that Odysseus is not going to die on this particular day in this particular cave. Homer's Odyssey is a quest story. Some people prefer to call it a road trip story. But whichever way you want to refer to it, the story would not be much of a story if the hero were to be killed in his first major adventure. So, very clearly, in order to make this story compelling and an awful lot of fun, well, some stuff has got to happen, because otherwise we really don't have much of a road trip, do we? So, 
In the story to follow, well, Odysseus is going to face an entire series of obstacles on his attempt to affect his homecoming. But ladies and gentlemen, the very best of our road trip stories are grounded in an overarching story arc, something which raises the stakes on the hero's journey by providing some compelling and very time-sensitive reason for the hero to complete his journey and to make it back home on time. So in the background of all of the really good road trip stories, even as the hero is destroying the monsters and overcoming the temptations, there was always an insistent clock, tick, tick, ticking, reminding we viewers, we readers, we podcast listeners, that the stakes of not making it home on time are perilously, perilously high. And so, folks, I'm going to need to leave Odysseus and those 12 brave men and take you out of Odysseus's cave and across the Aegean Sea, because I need to take you to the island kingdom of Ithaca. Now, of course, that is where Odysseus is ultimately attempting to get back home to. And for the sake of our story, what I want to do is I want to take you back to that island kingdom and indeed go back in time 10 years to a time before the Greek warlord King Agamemnon even conceived of his Operation Trojan Storm. So on that day, about 10 years ago, Odysseus inherited the kingship of Ithaca. Now, Ithaca had been run by Odysseus's dad, a man named Laertes. But on Laertes's 55th birthday, he seemed to have opted for some form of a Bronze Age version of a Freedom 55 early retirement plan. I don't know, maybe he had a really good pension or something like that. And uh, Laredes had left the kingship and headed off into the countryside to spend the rest of his natural life, oh, uh, cobbling along in the fields, working on viniculture and that sort of thing. And the job of being Ithaca's king fell to his only son, young Odysseus. Now, the day that Odysseus inherited the kingdom, he wasn't actually that young. Odysseus was about 30 years old. And Odysseus was absolutely thrilled to be king. He loved Ithaca. No, Ithaca wasn't a prosperous kingdom. It was kind of rugged. It was rocky. It was really not much good except for the farming of sheep and goats. But it was home. So Odysseus, on the day that he became king, set out on his first primary kingly responsibility. Odysseus needed to find himself a queen. And that, of course, meant going wife hunting. Now, folks, back in the Bronze Age, if you were a warlord king like Odysseus with a decent-sized kingdom, then wife hunting was actually what you set out to do. And if we're talking a little bit about wife hunting, well, the, the criteria in wife hunting are significantly different now in the 21st century than they would have been back in the Bronze Age. So let's sort of contrast a little bit uh, the expectations and goals that a Bronze Age warlord would have as he set out to find a life partner uh, versus the sort of expectations and goals that you or I might have if we were setting out today to find ourselves a life partner. So you and I today, we would be, well, looking for things uh, like compatibility, like some sort of an attraction. We'd be talking about, uh, well, is this a person that I understand? Is this a person that I enjoy spending time with? Is this a person that understands me and that I empathize with? And is this a person that I find physically, emotionally, and intellectually attractive? Those are the sort of things that we'd talk about. And if we were feeling particularly 21st century and romantic, we'd say, do I love this person? And does this person love me? But folks, those were not the things that a warlord king like Odysseus would be looking for. 
When he was choosing a partner to marry, what he was trying to do was find somebody who would cement Ithaca's social, economic, and geopolitical position inside of the Mediterranean Basin and the Bronze Age world. So Odysseus, through his marriage, would be hoping to further the economic interests of Ithaca and to ensure some sort of political and military ties and alliances with other neighboring kingdoms. Now, if the princess that he found turned out to be attractive and the two of them actually liked each other and enjoyed each other's company, then yay, that was a bonus. But it certainly wasn't a necessary condition to a Bronze Age marriage. But as it turned out, folks, Odysseus got really, really lucky on the marriage front. He met a princess named Penelope. Now, we don't know an awful lot about the geopolitical ties and alliances that Penelope brought in to Odysseus's Ithacan kingdom, but we do know an awful lot about the character of the woman that Odysseus chose to marry. Penelope, ladies and gentlemen, by all accounts, was a mirror image version of Odysseus himself. Penelope was intelligent, she was creative, she was clever, and of course she was more than capable of lies, manipulations, and deceits when necessary. So in short, it looks as though Odysseus, the Polytropus man, married a Polytropus woman. Folks, there's this scene later on inside of the Odyssey, and I have to be very careful about plot spoilers at this point, but later on in the Odyssey, once Odysseus gets out of that cave, he is going to meet himself a princess, and Odysseus is going to be charmed by this princess and, and, and want to bless her. Now listen to the words that Odysseus uses to bless this young, unmarried princess that he meets on his travels home. Dear princess, Odysseus says, I pray that the gods will grant you your heart's desire. A good home, a good husband, and harmony between the two of you. Oh, nothing is sweeter than that. When a man and a woman can live together as one, with one heart and one mind. And ladies and gentlemen, my gosh, if I were to pin lines like that onto a contemporary Valentine's Day card, well, those lines would work. That sounds absolutely wonderful. As, as a relationship, it sounds wildly romantic. So let's just leave that Odysseus, when he met Penelope, and during the one year they had together before Odysseus had to head off on the Trojan War, he was living with a woman that he found sweet to live with, there was harmony between the two of them, and that they were living in the kingdom of Ithaca with one heart and one mind. And then, since this is the wildly romantic section of the story, Penelope found herself pregnant. And nine months later, Penelope gave birth to a young boy, a son. They named him Telemachus. And ladies and gentlemen, on the day that Telemachus was born, not only did Odysseus and Penelope rejoice, the entire population of Ithaca rejoiced too. And again, this is a difference between, well, the 21st century and the Bronze Age. Nowadays, well, if you have a healthy child, that's wonderful news for the immediate family and for the close friends, but for everybody else, it really doesn't matter one way or t'other. But back in the Bronze Age, well, the birth of an heir, a son, that was a matter of highest state celebration and import, and here's why. If something terrible were to happen to Odysseus over the next few years, and of course the chances of something terrible happening were going to escalate rapidly when Odysseus has to head off to Troy, well, in the event of something terrible happening to Odysseus, it now meant that the kingdom of Ithaca, in the child Telemachus, 
had a legitimate heir to the Ithacan throne established and in place. So on the day that Telemachus was born, well, Odysseus rejoiced, Penelope rejoiced, but ladies and gentlemen, all of Ithaca rejoiced. And in fact, it's actually a very good thing that Telemachus was born as early in the marriage as he was, because just a few weeks after the birth of Telemachus, tragedy struck. And those of you who accompanied me through all 20 episodes of Trojan War, the podcast, know the tragedy which I refer to. We now call it the Trojan War. And when the war against Troy was launched, when King Agamemnon, king of kings of the Greek warlord kingdoms, announced his Operation Trojan Storm, Agamemnon sent messages across the Greek warlord world insisting that every warlord king join his glorious coalition army and put the city of Troy to the sword. And so, ladies and gentlemen, mere weeks after Telemachus had been born, less than a year after Odysseus had inherited the kingdom and met this wonderful woman, Penelope, Odysseus was required to sail with Agamemnon across the Aegean Sea in the largest, most high-risk military expedition that the Greek world had ever launched. 1,000 ships, 100,000 men-at-arms, sailing against Troy, a city with fearsomely high walls. And of course, that prophecy stating that the walls of Troy never would be destroyed by an enemy force. Now, Odysseus, just to be clear, he did not want to go on to the war. He wanted to stay at home at Ithaca. He wanted to stay at home with Penelope. He wanted to stay at home with his kid. And Odysseus, of course, was an intelligent enough man that when Agamemnon had assured all the warlords that the war would be over in two or three weeks at very most, Odysseus thought, you know, that's likely a bit of an overestimation. I could be there for a few months at most. So Odysseus had not wanted to go, but he really had no choice. Had he uh, decided to take a pass on the war, had he tried to make some excuse and kept the Ithacan army at home, well, then he would have ostracized Ithaca from every other Greek warlord state, and, well, there would have been economic, social, and possibly even military consequences for such a decision. So, on the day that he received the summons from Agamemnon, Odysseus tearfully informed Penelope that he would be gone for a few days, maybe even a few months. And then Odysseus, the king of Ithaca, sent out the summons and mobilized the Ithacan army. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm being a little bit playful when I talk about the Ithacan army because there was no professional standing army inside of Ithaca. Back in the Bronze Age, when you decided to head off on war, well, what a warlord would do was summon as many people as he thought he needed from his community. And suddenly the farmers, the fishermen, the stonemasons, even the storytellers... Well, they'd all find themselves drafted into this, well, short-term military force. But most of the men of Ithaca, in a standard two- to three-week smash-and-grab pirate kind of raid, well, most of the men at Ithaca would still stay at home. But Operation Trojan Storm? This was different. This was the largest enterprise that the Greek world had ever attempted, and Agamemnon had made it very clear to all of the warlords you will bring your entire male population with me to Troy. And so, when Odysseus put out the summons, it meant that every Ithacan man from about 14 years old all the way up to the senior citizens, they were all required to put down whatever it was they were doing as a day job 
and temporarily, at least for the next few weeks or months, become soldiers in Ithaca's army. So, once the army was cobbled together, once all the men had reported down to the harbor at Ithaca, all that was left for Odysseus to do was to say goodbye to Penelope and to say goodbye to his newborn son, Telemachus. And at this stage in the story, ladies and gentlemen, I get to do something special. Something that storytellers, well, way back since the Bronze Age, have always loved doing. I get to tell you a tiny little story, deliberately and shamelessly designed, to pull at your heartstrings. So the story that I'm going to tell you is about a faithful retainer. Now, all of the epic stories, particularly the stories of homecoming, always include at least one or two faithful retainers. And and, and those are the characters inside of the stories that do not go off on the hero's grand adventure, but rather stay at home and keep the home fires burning and batten down the hatches. And then someday when the hero does return from his adventure, we have that wonderful scene where the hero gets to turn to the faithful retainer and say something like, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, folks, The Odyssey actually has a few faithful retainers inside of its plot, but the faithful retainer I want to introduce you to right now is that ultimate heartstring puller of a faithful retainer. Ladies and gentlemen, the story of the Odyssey contains a puppy. Yes, a puppy. Now, the puppy's name was Argus. And when we actually meet Argus inside of Homer's Odyssey, Argus is no longer a puppy. Argus is a full-grown adult dog. But of course, that means, ladies and gentlemen, that Argus was a puppy once. And because everybody loves a puppy, I have absolutely no doubt as a storyteller myself that back in the Bronze Age, Homeric bards told Argus the puppy stories. But sadly now, in the 21st century, well, those original manuscripts have been lost. So allow me to take a moment and extrapolate on what was doubtless Homer's original telling of the story of Argus. On the very day when Telemachus was born, Odysseus' favorite hunting dog gave birth to a litter of puppies. Now the youngest of the puppies in that litter, the runt of the litter if you will, was named Argus. And Argus was weak, Argus was feeble, and, and and the servants, doing what they always did in this sort of a situation, were preparing it to drown the puppy Argus in a bucket of water. And it was a logical thing to do. That way the mother would have more time, more milk, and more attention for the healthier puppies inside of the litter. But good fortune for Argus, at the very moment when he was about to be drowned, Odysseus had walked into the room and looked into poor Argus's pleading little eyes, and Odysseus had stopped the servants. Do not drown that puppy, Odysseus had ordered. I will raise him. Doubtless something good will come out of this. And ladies and gentlemen, Argus, seeing his life spared at the very last moment, had looked back into Master's eyes, and Argus had quietly promised Master a lifetime of service and obedience. And Argus, in fact, was so grateful for having been saved by Master that Argus, as he grew up in the next few months, vowed to turn himself into Polytropus Puppy, the most intelligent, gifted, and creative dog ever to grace the face of a Greek epic. So during that one year that Odysseus had with his son Telemachus and his favorite puppy Argus, Well, Argus proved an industrious little doggy. 
He went to the trouble of learning all sorts of tricks on his own because Master was obviously too busy to teach him, and Argus followed Master dutifully and obediently everywhere. That is, until the day when Odysseus had to say his goodbyes to his wife Penelope and hug his young son Telemachus for one final time. And then as Odysseus was walking down towards the gates of Ithaca to join his army and his fleet, he had turned to Argus and he had stopped Argus. Now Argus had every intention of following Odysseus, his master, across the wine-dark sea and camping out right there on the beaches of the Trojan War, but Odysseus was a clever and educated enough man that he recognized that stories of faithful retainer puppies do not belong in the epics of war. They only belong in the epics of peace and homecoming. So Odysseus, when he had got to the gates of Ithaca, had turned to Argus, the obedient, dutiful puppy, and issued the fateful command. Argus, sit and stay. And of course, Argus immediately sat and stayed, though he was a little bit secretly disappointed. Argus was a bright little puppy, and he preferred it when Master gave him more challenging and complex commands to obey. But Master wasn't yet done with his orders. Odysseus continued, Argus, wait for Master. And so Argus sat stayed, and waited for Master at the gates of Ithaca. He would not move. And as they say in the epics, the days turned into weeks, the weeks turned into months, and the months turned into a full ten years. And though the people of Ithaca desperately tried to get Argus to leave the gates of the palace, to come inside, to go someplace else, and then return to his duty, Argus was a steadfast and faithful retainer. He stood and he waited at the gates. The people of Ithaca eventually gave up and they brought food to Argus. And as the years went by, ladies and gentlemen, Argus, the faithful retainer puppy, grew into an adult dog. And I need not remind you that dogs measure years quite differently than do we human beings. Ten years later, as Odysseus was sailing away from Troy, the war over, Argus was now a tired, old, but faithful doggy, still waiting at the gates of Ithaca for his master to return. So, as Argus waited at those gates, let's just move back up to the palace of Ithaca and take a look at what was expected of Penelope, suddenly thrust into the role of Ithaca's caretaker queen. What was she expected to do during the time that Odysseus was away fighting at Troy? And folks, there were really three primary obligations that suddenly poor Penelope found that she was going to have to do until her husband came back home. Her first duty, the duty of every woman inside of Ithaca during the time of their husband's absence, was the duty of stewardship. Penelope was expected to keep the home fires burning and, more importantly than that, ensure that all of Odysseus's wealth and household goods were carefully looked after during her husband's absence. Her role as good and faithful steward of Ithaca was to ensure that Odysseus came home and found that he had not lost all of his possessions while he had been away. Now, Penelope would have had an awful lot of help in doing this because the Greek women, generally speaking, were experts at stepping into the role of stewardship when their husbands, who were essentially pirates, were off on their various and sundry smash-and-grab military raids. 
But this expedition, this expedition against Troy, well, this was something much larger and, and, and more dramatic and more high stakes and high risk than anything that the Greek world had ever before attempted. So Penelope, in her role of steward, well, it was supposed to be a matter of weeks. But what was going to happen if Penelope was expected to keep the home fires burning and look after everything on the home front if it turned out that her husband was away not for weeks or months, but rather for years? The task was going to get infinitely more challenging. Okay, on to the next thing that Penelope was expected to do. And that was, during the time when Odysseus was away, Penelope was absolutely expected to remain sexually faithful to her husband. And, and more than sexually faithful, Penelope was expected to scrupulously avoid even a hint, a whiff, or even the minorest, tiniest little suggestion of any form of sexual scandal or infidelity. You now, those of us listening to the 21st century, well, we might kind of listen to something like this and go, well, yeah, of course. And, and the kind of thing that we'd be tempted to say would be, well, yes, of course. I mean, if dude is going out of town on business for a few weeks, uh, the least that dude can expect while he's out of town is that dude's wife keep her pants on back at home. But ladies and gentlemen, we always usually add the corollary to that. Uh, because, of course, dude will be keeping his pants on while he's away on business. But for we listeners in the 21st century, the concept of sexual fidelity between partners is really a bit of a quid pro quo deal. And realistically speaking, well, whatever relationship you and your partner come up with is nobody else's business at all. But that was not the case for Penelope and Odysseus living back in the Bronze Age. Back in the Bronze Age, sexual fidelity of women, and particularly the sexual fidelity of a queen, well, that was not a matter of private personal business. That was a matter of highest public interest. And here's why. Penelope had already given birth to a son, and everybody in Ithaca agreed that Odysseus was the father of that son. So, ladies and gentlemen, what that meant is that if, gods forbid, something terrible was to happen to Odysseus during the time that he was off in the Trojan War, well, then there was an heir apparent already standing in waiting to Ithaca's throne. The eldest son, the legitimate son of Odysseus, would become Ithaca's king. But if even a hint or a whisper or a rumor of sexual scandal got out there, and if people started saying things like, Penelope is sleeping with other men when her husband's back is turned, well then, ladies and gentlemen, the legitimacy of Telemachus as the heir apparent, well, that legitimacy would be called into serious question. And then if something terrible were to happen to Odysseus, Telemachus wouldn't have a guaranteed and uncontested path to the kingship of Ithaca. Competing relatives, families, distant cousins, all of those sort of people might arrive at the palace and say, well, we have no proof that Telemachus is the legitimate son, and consequently my son or my uncle or my father should actually be Ithaca's next king. And the entire kingdom of Ithaca could be plunged into a very ugly civil war. So, for Penelope, remaining sexually faithful to her husband was not just a personal matter between her and Odysseus. She was actually guaranteeing her son's someday succession to the kingship and protecting the entire population of Ithaca from an ugly 
contested war of succession. Now, that doesn't mean it was any fun for Penelope. Ladies and gentlemen, let's just remember the situation. When Odysseus sailed away, the poor girl was in her sexual prime, and, well, her husband, who said he was only going to be away for a few days or weeks, was still in the beaches of Troy a full decade later. And, of course, well, during that decade, there would have been men coming into town. Penelope would have been expected as the hostess to provide them with hospitality and entertainment, and some of those men, no doubt attractive, engaging, pleasant, and oh-so-discreet, would have quietly offered Penelope uh, the services of the absent king. So, remaining sexually faithful and remaining above sexual reproach? Well, for Penelope, it would have been absolutely no fun and a full-time and difficult job. But the truth is that Penelope's most difficult challenge in her husband's absence was actually the challenge of raising young Telemachus. And Penelope had the odds stacked against her with raising Telemachus from the very moment that Odysseus sailed away. And that's really because poor Penelope, she faced a dual duty, and the two duties were actually quite conflicting. On the one hand, well, Penelope was expected to make sure that Telemachus was safe from any form of physical harm. He was the only heir to Ithaca's throne. So if, gods forbid, something happened to Odysseus, it was absolutely imperative that Telemachus still be alive and healthy and fit to step into the big shoes of kingship. But the other part of that duty is to actually prepare young Telemachus so that if someday he did become king, he would actually have the requisite skills to be able to do the job properly. So, for us to understand here in the 20th century why these two duties were so conflicting, I, I need to tell you a little wee bit about Ithaca's patriarchal world. Back in the Bronze Age of Ithaca, the men raised the boys, and the women raised the girls. And it was the job of the Ithacan men, the, the dads, the fathers, to inculcate their sons with the skills, the values, and, and the character traits necessary for those boys to someday grow into men and assume their proper and appropriate place inside of Ithacan society. But now, folks, all of the dads were gone. Across the Aegean Sea, camped out on the beaches of Troy. And back in Ithaca, an entire generation of lost boys was growing up with absentee fathers. And while we know from social science down through all cultures and all ages exactly what happens when you have an entire generation of young men who are raised without the dads at home. So back in Ithaca in the Bronze Age, well, the very same thing happened. Some of those lost boys, well, they ran wild. Their mums proved absolutely incapable of providing guidance or any form of discipline. And as a consequence, those young men, as they grew up, they turned into bullies, thugs, and boors. And then on the other end of the spectrum, of course, well, you got the mothers who took the opposite tack with their sons. Those mums, possibly grieving the loss of their husbands who were away overseas and now having lost a husband, not wanting to lose a son too, well, those mothers held on perhaps too tightly to their own boys. And as a consequence, those sons grew up to be really nice, really educated, really sweet young boys, but also overly delicate and very, very timid. They became the stereotypical mama's boys. And poor little Telemachus, well, that was his ultimate fate. 
Penelope held on to her only son and Ithaca's only heir, so tight and so close that poor Telemachus never really got the opportunity to learn how to be a man in a patriarchal, alpha male, Ithacan warlord culture. Now, if Odysseus and the other dads of Ithaca got home soon, well, then there would be no problems. There'd be plenty of time for Odysseus to sit down with his son, and Telemachus, only 10 years old, would have lots of opportunity to witness his dad doing his kingly thing. And then Telemachus could ease himself into the job of kingship someday himself. But if Odysseus and the other Ithacan fathers did not get home soon, then all of Ithaca, and especially Telemachus, were going to find themselves in a world of hurt. But then, ladies and gentlemen, joy of joys and good news, on the very day that Telemachus turned 10 years old, word arrived that the Trojans had been destroyed and that the fathers of Greece were now all coming home. And it's really a cool story how Ithaca found out about this. And, and so let me tell you the story. The story involves Agamemnon's wife. Now, as you'll recall, Agamemnon was the leader of Operation Trojan Storm. He was the king of kings. He ran the powerful warlord kingdom of Mycenae. And Agamemnon's wife, well, her name was Clytemnestra. Now, on the very day that her husband Agamemnon had sailed across the wine-dark sea to set the city of Troy to the sword, Clytemnestra had had a personal and highly vested interest in knowing to the exact moment the day when her husband would be returning home. And so Clytemnestra had come up with a very clever plan. At great personal expense, she had had built a series of signal fire beacons and these signal fire beacons on hilltops or on islands stretched all the way from Mycenae, her home kingdom, down through mainland Greece, out to the Aegean Sea, and then through a series of islands all the way across the Aegean Sea to the city of Troy itself. And the concept of the signal fire beacons was really, really simple. On the day when the Greeks destroyed Troy, when the city burned, and the fleet would be heading home, the signal fire closest to Troy would be lit. And then, of course, that signal fire would be seen by the next signal fire hilltop. That fire would be lit. And it, well, through that process, eventually, a fire would be burning within visual range of the city of Mycenae itself. And Clytemnestra would know, within a few days, a week at a most, my husband Agamemnon will be arriving back at the palace. And that was going to give Clytemnestra the time she needed to prepare for her husband the appropriate and special welcome that she had waiting for him. Now, of course, once Clytemnestra had gone to all the work of setting up the beacon fire system, it spread throughout the entire Greek mainland and even all the way over to the far shores of western Ithaca. So the day came when the people of Ithaca looked up in the evening sky and they saw across in the mainland a signal fire burning. And they knew that that meant the war against Troy was over and their husbands were all coming home. Now, on that day, of course, all of Ithaca rejoiced. Down at the harbor, of course, Argus, now a 10-year-old dog, well, he was even more relieved. And Argus, of course, was a polytropous dog, so he had already figured out the basic elements of human speech, and he understood that Master would be home in a mere matter of days. And Argus, after 10 long, loyal years of sitting and staying and waiting, Argus stood up and he wagged his tail. He had waited, just as Master had commanded. And now, Odysseus, his master 
was finally, finally, finally coming home. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Argus might not have been wagging his tail quite so joyously, nor the people of Ithaca dancing quite so enthusiastically in the streets, if they knew what, well, what we all know. Because Odysseus, their king, is not going to be coming home, anytime soon at least. And currently, Odysseus, their king, is trapped in a cave, where his twelve bravest hand-picked men are soon going to die. Horrifying, unspeakable deaths. Well, Odysseus looks on, absolutely powerless to save them. And ladies and gentlemen, I promise you that as soon as we get into episode number two of Odyssey the Podcast, now that we've established Penelope's backstory, and now that we have introduced that tick, tick, tick urgency of what is transpiring back in Ithaca, well, in episode number two, we will return to Odysseus's adventures on his journey home, and we will meet all of the exciting monsters and temptations which he is no doubt going to face. But in the meantime, I need to introduce you to a feature of Odyssey the Podcast, a feature which I call the post-story commentaries. And here's what the post-story commentaries are. After every episode of storytelling, what I do is I indulge in what I call a post-story scholarly geek-out session. And that's, well, the time inside of the podcast where I take off my storyteller hat and replace it, if you will, with my teacher hat. And I use the opportunity to chat for a while about some of the cool issues, the concepts, even the interesting trivia that emerged from the episode of the story that I just told. Now, if you are a veteran of Trojan War, the podcast, you're very, very familiar with these post-story commentaries. And I have to admit that when I receive email about Trojan War, the podcast, my listeners tell me that the post-story commentaries are at least as much fun as the story itself. And for many listeners, the commentaries actually make the storytelling experience vastly richer. So if you're new to the post-story commentaries, I'd encourage you to give them a go. And finally... If at any time while listening to Odyssey the Podcast, you are feeling a particularly strong desire to be blessed and rewarded by the muses, then you might want to pay a visit to my donate page. The muses, it turns out, have a particular affinity for we epic storytelling bards. So, when you support us, the muses richly bless and reward you. Okay, that's enough business. Now it is time to dive into the first of the post-story commentaries. And inside of this commentary, I'm going to be playing with one central and fascinating question. Was there ever really a guy named Homer? And did he write the Odyssey? And if yes, then was the Homer who wrote the Odyssey the same Homer as the Homer who wrote the Iliad? I think that you might be surprised by some of the answers. So welcome to the post-story commentary. Now, what I told you we were going to talk about inside of this post-story commentary was a series of interrelated big questions, specifically the question of who wrote the Odyssey, when was the Odyssey written, and was the person who wrote the Odyssey the same person or persons who wrote the Iliad? So let's dive in first by setting a few dates for some context. Folks, for the Odyssey, 
for the Iliad and in fact for the entire famous war that took place between the Greek world and Troy, well, I will confess that preparing for this post-story commentary, I spent quite a little bit of time trying to hunt down some hard and fast dates for you. And I came up empty in my search. It seems to be nearly impossible to get any group of scholars to nail down hard dates on the publications of Iliad Odyssey or even a hard date on the Trojan War, if it even happened. Now, eventually, in my frustration, I found a wonderful quote that I'm going to share with you now. It comes from Emily Wilson, a translator of Homer, who did her translation in 2017. Here's what she says in her scholarly essay leading into her translation. I quote, The date of the Odyssey, no less than its authorship, is a matter of serious disagreement. And what Ms. Wilson says about Odyssey could be equally said about Iliad or about the date of the Trojan War itself. So, here's as close as I can get for you now. The war between the Greek world and Troy happened sometime circa 1150 to 1200 BCE. And if you want the specific details on that war, which may or may not have happened at all, then you might want to hop over to Trojan War, the podcast, and the post-story commentary of episode 20, where I dive into the historical and the archaeological details of the ruins of the city of Troy. Now on to the Iliad. The Iliad was written first before the Odyssey, and the Iliad appears to have been written sometime between 700 and 600 BCE. And then, possibly about 50 years later or so, again the jury is still out, the Odyssey was composed. So somewhere around 650 to 600 BCE. Now, folks, both the Iliad and the Odyssey are epic poems that describe an imagined world and, as I said, a war which might or might not have ever even happened. And the Homer, or Homers, on to that in a moment, who wrote these stories, well, these stories we need to remember were written a full 500 years after the war, which may or may not have happened, happened. Wow, that sounds awkward. Now, the big mistake that an awful lot of folks make is that they assume when they're reading the Odyssey, or the Iliad, that Homer, the author, was providing an eyewitness account of a Bronze Age world event and a Bronze Age war that he was intimately and personally very familiar with. And to a certain degree, that's a credit and a testament to the quality of Homer's imagination and the skill in his writing. But... We need to remember, some things inside of the Odyssey and some things inside of the Iliad depict Bronze Age culture and Bronze Age values from the 11 to 1200s BCE, whereas other things inside of Iliad and Odyssey depict Homer's own Greek culture from 500 years later in world history than that. And then there are bits inside of Iliad and Odyssey that depict an imaginary world that likely never, ever existed anywhere in space or time. So, I appreciate that the proceeding might have actually added more confusion than it did clarity to the discussion, but that's the best I can do by way of dates. Now let's move on to the question of who was Homer? And here, folks, there are essentially three different schools of thought or ways of answering that question. 
There are some scholars out there who argue that there was just one Homer, and that that Homer composed both the Iliad and the Odyssey. Then there are other scholars, and more of them in this camp actually, who argue for two Homers. One Homer who composed Iliad, and a completely different individual who composed the Odyssey. And then there is likely the majority opinion, at least the majority opinion as I'm recording now in 2019, which is that there was a collection or a coalition or a committee of Homers who developed, wrote down, penned or created the Iliad and the Odyssey over some time. Now, I certainly can't resolve the debate for you right here. The best I can do is refer you back to the post-story commentary in Trojan War the Podcast, episode 11, a commentary I titled, Did a Guy Named Homer Exist? And Did He Write the Iliad? And the comments I made there about the Iliad are apropos to everything we need to know about the Odyssey right now. But, ladies and gentlemen, there is one area where the scholars do seem to all speak with the same perspective. And that is the question of whether the one Homer, two Homers, or committee of Homers who wrote Iliad were the same collection of one Homer, two Homers, or committee of Homers who later wrote the Odyssey. And most scholars these days seem to share the opinion that the Odyssey was composed by an individual or group of individuals different than the individuals or group of individuals who composed the Iliad. Now, it's very clear that if you read the Odyssey, that the author or authors of the Odyssey knew the Iliad very, very well indeed. And there are lots of references inside of the Odyssey which refer directly back to moments, figures of speech, and that sort of thing that exist in the Iliad. But folks, there are significant enough differences between the Iliad and the Odyssey to point to two different authors or collections of authors. Now, some of those differences are in literary technique. Some of those differences are in moral perspective or worldview. And many of those differences come down to portrayals of specific characters which show up inside of both works. And in the case of the portrayal of characters, sometimes a character shows up one way inside of the Iliad, and then seems to be an entirely different individual altogether inside of the Odyssey. Now, of course, I don't want to give you any specific examples now, for fear of plot spoilers, but when we get to the appropriate points inside of Odyssey the podcast, we'll have further discussions on this topic. So, one final point before we move on. Folks, the established scholarly convention is to refer to the author or the authors of the Iliad and the Odyssey by the singular word Homer. And in my Odyssey the Podcast storytelling, I am going to follow that convention. So, now let's move on to the next big burning question of this commentary. The structure of Homer's Odyssey. Homer's Odyssey, like Homer's Iliad, begins in the middle of things. We get leapt right in smack dab to the middle of the plot. But, unlike the Iliad, the Odyssey is further complicated by a whole series 
of time shifts, flashbacks, and competing narrative voices. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this makes the structure of the Odyssey rather complex to understand. So what I want to try to do to help illustrate this for you is to show you what the Odyssey would look like if Homer had chose to tell his story in a strictly chronological fashion, setting out from Troy the day after the city burned, and finally wrapping up sometime later. The order of Homer's Odyssey in terms of the books would have to look like this. The Odyssey would begin with book number 9, and then we would read books 9, 10, 11, and 12. And then the Odyssey would continue with books 5, 6, 7, and 8. Now, if the Odyssey was set up in this fashion, you'd have a problem as a reader, because at the same time as you were reading books 5, 6, 7, and 8, you would simultaneously have to be reading books 1, 2, 3, and 4. Ladies and gentlemen, there are two plots that happen in parallel time inside of Homer's Odyssey. The first of those plots happens in books 5 through 8. The other parallel plot happens in books 1 through 4. And ultimately, if we were to rearrange everything chronologically inside of Homer's Odyssey, we would then get to book 13, and we would carry on with books 14, 15, 16, all the way through to book 24, without anything weird happening in the structure of the books at all. Now, that sounds really, really complex, and it is. And folks, that has led scholars and critics pretty well since the Odyssey was published to argue that the Odyssey was not created by one single Homer, but rather was cobbled or stitched together by a committee of Homers, likely working towards a deadline, an overdue coffee break, and seriously lacking in any sort of editorial oversight. And for centuries, some scholars have complained that when you read Homer's Odyssey, the complex structure is evidence that some parts of the Odyssey were written by one Homer, whereas other parts of the Odyssey were tacked on or cobbled in or stitched together by another Homer or Homers completely. But I don't want to lead you to think that that is the current majority opinion. Ladies and gentlemen, most contemporary scholars that I have studied argue that the complex structure of the Odyssey and all of these plot shifts and narrative points of view differences are not evidence of sloppy writing, but rather the reverse. That they are evidence of one highly intelligent and creative genius putting together a brilliant work of world literature. And these scholars argue that every decision inside of the Odyssey, which might seem like a strange jumbling up of chronology, is actually, upon more careful and thoughtful reading and inspection, the evidence of a literary genius at work. Now, folks, I don't really know how to weigh into the two sides of this argument. The truth of the matter is, if I'm quite honest right now, I find myself buying into the former camp sometimes, and then buying into the latter camp at other times. And of course, what you need to know, and it's the relevant question to Odyssey the podcast, is what sort of a plot structure do I, Jeff, intend in my podcast to follow? And ladies and gentlemen, you can already see what I'm going to do. Because I started my story in a strictly chronological fashion. We pulled Odysseus out of the burning city of Troy, popped him onto a boat, and headed him across Poseidon's wine-dark sea. 
And that story, which I've already told you, does not show up inside of Homer's Odyssey until book number nine. So, in my rendition of Homer's Odyssey, here is the order that I will be following. First, you are going to hear books 9, 10, 11, and 12. Then I'm going to tell you the stories in books 5, 6, 7, and 8. After that, I will hop over, go back, and tell you the stories in books 1, 2, 3, and 4. And then I'll turn to book 13, and we will blaze all the way through without interruption until we conclude book number 24. Now, folks, it sounds as though my rendition is going to be absolutely jarring and confusing and chronologically messy, but the truth is, it will sound as though I'm telling you the story in a strictly sequential and chronological fashion. But, ladies and gentlemen, I will concede that it does beg the question, why am I not using the structure of Homer's masterwork, the Odyssey, in my Odyssey, the podcast project? And here's my answer. As I set out to record this podcast, I am working on the very same set of assumptions that I used when I set out to record my earlier Trojan War, the podcast, serial. My assumption is that my listening audience is hearing these stories told to them for the very first time in their lives. And as a consequence, my audience, those of you listening right now, really do not know what is going to happen next. And that, of course, has been the basis of my no-plot-spoilers guarantee in both Trojan War the Podcast and in this project to follow. Now, folks, given that that's my core assumption as your storyteller, here would be my problem if I followed Homer's structure the way he has it set up in his Odyssey. Ladies and gentlemen, I would have ruined the no-plot-spoilers guarantee for you within the very first few lines of the Odyssey. There is one major plot spoiler which shows up in the third sentence, and there's another major plot spoiler that shows up in sentences 6 and 7. Now, the question of course is, why didn't these plot spoilers bother Homer's original intended audience? And here's why. Folks, there was nothing that Homer could have said inside of the intro or in the early words of his story that would have come as a surprise to any of his readers. And that's because inside of the culture that Homer was writing, the audience inside of that culture knew these stories inside out, upside down, and backwards. These stories were hardwired into the oral tradition culture of Homer's time period. Now, just to be clear, ladies and gentlemen, the lucky thing that Homer got to do, because his readers already knew the plot, was to focus on his artistic and creative talents in rearranging the element of that plot to make for a brilliant piece of world literature. But, my more modest task as your 21st century podcasting bard is to simply tell the original story in an order that makes sense to an audience hearing it for the very first time. So I have rearranged the story's order. And, of course, I've also inserted lots of help with social, cultural, and historical context. But here's my secret hope. 
I am hoping, ladies and gentlemen, that if you enjoy Odyssey the podcast, if you find the stories fascinating, if you are inspired by the bits of Homer's poetry that I include inside of my podcast serial, then once you finish Odyssey the podcast, you might decide to pick up a copy of Homer's Odyssey and read the original. And then, since you will already know what's going to happen next, you will be able to revel in the brilliance of what Homer does with this very wonderful story. Okay, that's likely a pretty good place to leave this first post-story commentary. So, when we move on to episode number two of Odyssey the Podcast, I will be bringing all of us right back in to that mysterious cave, where you will recall Odysseus and his twelve bravest men are soon about to die. Horrible, unspeakable deaths. Well, Odysseus, their leader, looks on, absolutely powerless to save them. Folks, all I can promise you is it is going to be a barn burner of an episode and a whole heck of a lot of really good storytelling fun. So, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed episode number one of Odyssey the Podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, have yourselves absolutely awesome days. <laughs>